Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello listeners and welcome back to the Market Pulse podcast for a a new year, 2021. Thank you for tuning in for a new year, new episode. My name is Dion Grubin and this is episode 43 of the Market Pulse podcast, the Impeaches and Cream edition. So yes, welcome back to 2021. The podcast is back. Our episodes are back on our normal schedule. As of now, it appears there were some relatively newsworthy events while I was away. <laughs> I, I, I was almost argue less so from a market perspective. Um, well, I recall watching a commentator over the, my break just talking about how the Australian market, at least on the day that we woke up to all the news about those capital riots in the US, that it sort of seemed to be a bit unfazed. And we'll touch on that after we look at the indices, which we always start each episode up for. But remember, the market's always looking at what sort of impacts the market, broadly speaking, directly. And I think what was more influencing on the market, at least, was the Democrats win, uh, winning both Georgia Senate seats in the runoff election that was held there. But we'll go into a little bit more detail about all of that soon and we'll cover a few bits of information here and there from financial markets that I found interesting. But a new year doesn't change the fact that we do always look at how the markets performed over the last week and we will do that. And let's look at the Australian and the US markets first. So the Australian market did okay this week. It was up 0.6%. The US, not so much, especially as it sort of tailed off towards the end. The S&P 500 down almost 1.5%. NASDAQ a little bit worse, down 2.3%. Well, it was an eventful few weeks, wasn't it? I mean, not for me personally. I, I had a little bit of time away from work between Christmas and New Year. Didn't do anything super exciting. But I suppose if you live in uh, Washington, D.C. or work in Washington, D.C., then it's probably been a little bit eventful it's completely locked down there's more troops in that city than there is even in the entirety of Afghanistan and Iraq at the moment Um, all of this after the riots that hit the capital building or the capital there um, and all these troops there in preparation for Biden's inauguration which is only days away now And and that comes on the sort of back of the fact that the pandemic is still raging on for the US and We'll chat about Australia soon, but now over 400,000 deaths in the US alone, 2 million worldwide from COVID-19. But I think the point that the market is focused on in relation to US events is still COVID and vaccine rollout. That's been a big focus, but also the Georgia race that I mentioned. And so for context, I will step back. So before the US election, you know, apart from, you know, it's all about obviously the, the presidential race, you know, between Biden and Trump. Um, but you also, apart from those, that presidential position, the two sort of lawmaking entities that make up US Congress being the House of Representatives and the Senate, um, they were controlled by different parties. This is before the election. So prior to the election, the House was controlled by the Democratic Party under Nancy Pelosi. At, at the Senate level, though, that was controlled by the GOP, the Republicans, under the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Now, when everyone voted on election day, they not only picked a presidential preference between Biden and Trump, uh, and there was another libertarian candidate, I think, as well. But anyway, but they 
they also voted down ballot on Senate and House seats. So when the dust settled and it became clear that after a couple of days that Biden had won the presidency through those key swing states we spoke about before Christmas, the other bit that became clear was the Democratic Party had continued their hold on the House, so they already held it going in, albeit that they actually lost seats though, so they actually did go backwards in this recent election, so they lost seats, but they still have a majority uh, of the House seats, so they still retain control. The issue was the Senate, and that's because of a state called Georgia. So Georgia, and Georgia's not the only state that has this rule, but there's not many, but Georgia has a rule where the winning candidate for the seat, so we'll, we'll make it, we'll give you an example, right? So let's say you have a Senate seat for the area of Melbourne, and you have four candidates running um, for the area of Melbourne for Senate. Now, what happens is you need to get at least 50% of, a single candidate needs to get at least 50% of the vote to win the seat outright. Otherwise, it goes to what's called a runoff election. So if we go, if we look at our pretend make-believe Senate seat of Melbourne, let's say the votes come in and you've got John who gets 40% of the vote, Jane, 35%, uh, Jess got 15%, and Jim got 10%. Now, obviously, you look at that and you say, well, John clearly won here, 40% of the vote. But under the rules that Georgia operates on, uh, that's not enough to win. That's not enough. And you go to what's called a runoff election. So what happens next? The top two candidates, so in our example, John got 40%, Jane got 35%. Those two would go to a special election just between the two of them. So all, everyone else gets the boot out, uh, but the, the people who got the top two amount of votes go to a special election between them both and pits them against each other, just those two. And the winner of that is who wins the Senate seat. Now, what happened in Georgia was this occurred for both Senate seats. One was up just normally. One of the Senate seats was up normally. Another one was up because of the previous person retired. But both of the Senate seats were up for grabs and none of them in the actual normal election day, no no one actually got at least 50% of the vote. The the Republican candidates got very close, but they didn't didn't quite get 50%. Hence a runoff. Now, what I found fascinating, I guess, from a market perspective about this is what happens there could set the scene at least of how the first couple years of a Biden administration look because the market had already digested the fact that Biden had won the election. But it was watching the way the Senate fell because if any of those two seats went to the Republicans or they retained it, the Republicans would then retain their majority in the Senate. And I guess if you're looking at this from a... Uh, a market's lens, broadly you'd see that as, okay, well, if one party controls the House, the Democrats, they put forward legislation. The Senate that's controlled by the Republicans, by the opposing party, they might knock it down. They might force them to make changes uh, make or throw stuff in that they want so there'd be uh, maybe room for negotiation or removal of certain things off a bill or legislation that the House puts forward. Um they could just make it hard for thing anything to get done. You know, they could just be obstructive the whole time. But if the Democrats won the Senate, and then so you've got one party controlling both levels, well, then that maybe something different could happen. Maybe you could see um, working through of legislation a bit easier. But the Democrats had to win uh, for them to win the Senate. They would have to win both those Georgia seats. And just for context, Georgia is not a state like, say, California, where everyone's like, hey, man, where's my organic oat milk latte, man? It's a red state. It's 
traditionally, as if you were putting betting odds on it, actually, it would have been interesting to the betting odds, but it, traditionally, if this was put to a betting line, the Democrats would be clear underdogs in terms of pulling this off. So they had to go... It, they had to go all in. They couldn't have just won one CD either. That still would have put them behind. They had to win both. But some interesting pieces started to move in the lead up to this. So after the election, but running coming up into early Jan when they had the, the, the Georgia runoff. You had figures that are really good sort of grassroots organisers for the Democrats temporarily moved to Georgia to help out. So well, I don't think, I think Stacey Abrams actually lives there, but she's a former representative from Georgia. She's a good sort of grassroots on the ground organizer. You had people like Andrew Yang, who's a, he's a former presidential candidate who became really popular um, during the presidential campaign or during the primaries because he brought a lot of topics, you know, like economic reform topics such as universal basic income to the forefront. A lot of people kind of rushed to the state to help out uh, or at least try and help the Democrats have a chance. But the big thing I think in a probably go down as a mistake or a, or a bad move in history. But the Senate leader I mentioned before, Mitch McConnell, he kind of played footsie with the stimulus checks that were approved or wanting to be upped. And this might have actually tipped the election or the Senate race there to the Democrats. So what happened specifically? Well, remember in the podcast for many weeks leading up to Christmas, I kept saying one of the things the markets, especially the US markets focused on besides covid but related to COVID, here's uh, stimu- more stimulus coming from the government, specifically stimulus checks, like yeah, actual payments issued straight to people, so straight up spending money for households um, to help them with their daily living or rent assistance, whatever it is. Now, it's important to not to gloss over the actual impact that straight up cash had to working people in the US. So in an article from the New York Times by Jason DePaul, on October 15th, 2020, last year, he touched on the research that had been done by both Columbia University and the University of Chicago and Notre Dame about the actual tangible impact the cash injection had. Quote, the number of poor people has grown by 8 million since May. So that's, he's referring to um, when the actual, that initial CARES package, so the big initial stimulus package that the US did, that's when it ended uh, what ended just a bit before that. So he's saying that um, the number of poor people had grown by 8 million since it ended. Accord- and that's according to researchers at Columbia University, after falling by 4 million at the pandemic start as a result of $2 trillion emergency package known as the CARES Act. So what actually happened or what the est- around the estimates are is it just straight up lifted about 4 million people out of um, what would be defined as the poverty line. And the impact was even a bit more recently emphasised in an article by, or an opinion piece by economist Paul Krugman, who's a very famous economist. Um, he wrote this in the New York Times on January 16, 2021, so just the other day. Quote, more recently, the CARES Act, which is early last year, which provided aid to businesses, expanded unemployment benefits, gave out checks and more, greatly, greatly alleviated the damage from the pandemic. Poverty itself may even have gone down while the act was in full effect. And there's a lot of data to show that just overall you know, the way the way to measure poverty in the US that was actually slightly brought down during that time because of the amount of aid that went out. So that's a little bit of how the 2020 stimulus went. That was prior to the election, of course. But if we go back on track, we spent a couple of those podcasters sort of checking in and sort of saying, oh, there's no real movement on stimulus. Maybe there's some whispers. I think I think I even said my personal opinion was I probably couldn't see it happening before. Uh, Biden actually came in like I, I thought there'd just be 
not much incentive to do anything after the election was uh, over. But I was wrong about that. So right at the end of December, the US government did pass a new coronavirus relief relief package, $900 billion in spending in total. Trump signed the bill. Now, and the relief package included direct payments of $600 to eligible individuals. And there'd be a lot of sort of murmuring about it being higher. I know there was certain particular people that wanted it to be higher, but what happened next was quite interesting. There was this push to actually change that $600 payment to $2,000. And this was actually getting pushed by Trump himself. So he he would tweet about it. He he called for the checks to be raised to $2,000, give the people what they want. You had people like uh, Senator Bernie Sanders saying, yep, 100% totally agree with Trump. Like he was on the, the floor of the Senate sort of saying, you know, because he, he doesn't like Trump at all, but he's saying on this thing, he's like, I just, I totally agree with Trump. Let's do it. Let's do 2000. The House wanted to move on it. Um, so the House of Reps meant again, just to actually vote on the specific thing of actually just increasing those checks to, from $600 to 2000 now, how this all relates back to what happened in Georgia is the the idea of increasing stimulus checks was not a divided issue among everyday Americans. So regardless of like the polling and research showed that regardless of whatever your political leaning was, this type of move, this type of spending had very broad support amongst uh, most Americans by far. And it became something that kind of defined the race in Georgia very clearly. So the increase from $600 to 2000 in direct payments passed in the House really easily. You actually had a bunch of Republicans vote for it in the House because, you know, I'm sure they're, regardless, again, of political leaning, their constituents probably favoured it and they would know that. So from a political move, it made sense to actually support this. However, it reached the Senate. And as we said, this is controlled by the GOP, by the Republican Party. And under Senate, this is under Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Now, this is the FTSE I talked about before. So Mitch McConnell did begin to get the bill ready to be voted on by the Senate, but he didn't leave the bill as it was as a single issue of just increasing the checks from 600 to 2,000. Instead, what he did is he included some other things, like he bundled it together with some other things. So uh, the creation of a commission to study election issues, like election, which is kind of like a thing that Trump wants, um, also a repeal of Section 230, which is a legal liability protection for internet platforms. It basically is a protection for internet companies so they're not legally liable for something that an actual user posts on their platform. But in political speak, what occurred is he would have done this knowing full well that the Democrats don't want to vote on the whole combined package. They just wanted to vote on the raising of the stimulus checks. So kind of like purposely tanking the whole thing Without it, without it having that go to an actual vote. So instead of it going to a vote where you have you know a clear idea on who voted yes and who voted no on this, he kind of like tanked the bill before it could even get there. And that's a specific tactic, right? Leave, leaving it dead in the water. And I guess he was betting that that would be still okay enough for his Georgia candidates to be okay. So the issue for Georgia is both his, both the Republican senators running there, which is Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, they had publicly endorsed the increasing of the checks. So when I say Mitch was playing footsie with the bill, he was kind of betting that maybe people wouldn't notice that that's what's happened or at least it wouldn't be as highly pushed back against by people so as to cost them politically in the stake. But I think because of this overwhelming popularity among people for the increased checks, what happened next in Georgia is 
um, what you started to see is when this happened is the one of the Democrats running, which is uh, Reverend uh, Raphael Warnock, he and he was running in the state directly against Kelly Loeffler, the GOP candidate. He just started. He just started running ads, basically saying, "If you want two thousand dollars instead of six hundred dollars, vote for me." Like he was just like just real basic economic ads. It was just like, "You want two thousand bucks? Vote for me." Um, basically saying like we'll get control of the Senate and we won't have to worry about um, trying to appeal to Mitch McConnell. We'll get the we'll get the majority and we'll just get the money out. And it might have worked. It kind of appears that it worked because both the Democratic candidates pulled it off, which really was an upset. I really, I mean, this was like I said, it was they were very much the underdogs going into this. Both of them beating their Republican rivals. It, it brings the Senate floor to fifty seats to the Democrats and then 50 to the Republican Party, which is a tie, of course, but the reason it's reported as being a majority for the Democrats is the sitting vice president gets a, a vote to swing either way. So um, in in the last few years, that, that obviously Mike Pence, but now that's Kamala Harris, so that would tip it to being 51 votes for the Democrats, hence the majority. So that is the story of how the Senate races in Georgia Landed and I went through all this and I highlight this because this is this is a big thing that the market was paying a lot of attention to. It was kind of overshadowed when when this all happened by what occurred in the Capitol. But um, you know the market paid attention to the presidential race last year. After a couple of days, when it became clear that Biden had won through swing states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, he tipped those to his favor. The market understands. Okay, so we know who the next president is. But the other thing it pays attention to is, you know, is it going to be a sort of a very obstructive term where you've just got different controlled in, in House and Senate and nothing kind of gets done? Or is it going to be likely for legislation to actually pass maybe a bit easier um, for the new president, of course? It seems like, at least for the, again, for the first couple of years, because you have midterms and all this stuff, providing he wants to and he, yeah, we'll see what happens, but he's... At least you say he's better positioned to pass new legislation than where it looked like um, he might land initially when he won the presidential race. So from an investor point of view, it, it perhaps goes from saying there might be some change pushed through as opposed to um, maybe not so much change put through. And I'm not discounting any of the other events that transpired in terms of the the sort of political events that occurs, civil unrest events. Um, but my, from my perspective, at least my belief is that those don't always necessarily impact financial markets in a way that you might think. It's not like when that was happening, suddenly the market falls or something like this. So it's always looking a little bit more, look, looking at things a little bit more complex than that. However, that is actually different to how events can actually impact sp- individual companies specifically. So if you stay on the whole theme of Trump and what occurred at the Capitol, you saw social media giants take quite unprecedented steps. Uh, Twitter and Facebook making the move to actually per- place permanent bans on Trump on their respective platforms. Twitter uh, is just Twitter. Facebook owns um, Instagram as well. So this co- and the impact to these companies can't be uh, understated as well. So the, this comes from a market insider, a Markets Insider article by Ben Winnick on January third. Sorry, January thirteen. Quote: Facebook tumbled four percent on Monday and another two point two percent on Tuesday as shareholders dumped the stock likely feel, fearing the ban could drive users off the platform. By the time the markets closed on Tuesday, Facebook's market cap sat, 
sat $47.6 billion below its Friday level. So it had actually shed $47.6 billion in value off its market cap just by making that move and, and its stock price tumbling. Twitter plunged 6.4% to start the week and dipped another 2.4% going into Tuesday. The decline saw Twitter market cap drop by about $3.5 billion. And if you're wondering why the plunge in their share prices, I guess no matter your any kind of political ideology, social media platforms at the end of the day they run on ad revenue. So if you m- remove a person like Trump, who who he you know he brings a lot of eyeballs to the platform itself, and that's not just his supporters, right? Anyone, right? Journalists, writers, people who are just merely curious about the stuff he's saying. I guess that's where I'd fall in there. Um, if you see a tangible activity in act sorry, a tangible drop in activity like that, it could actually translate to impact their bottom line. And that's how, at least how the market's viewing this. And I imagine, <laughs> I imagine the actual decision wasn't taken very well by Trump internally. If you recall, a few years ago, back in 2017, he told in an interview with the Financial Times that he specifically said without the tweets, he wouldn't be here. As in, he wouldn't be in the presidential seat. Like he really kind of credited... Um, that access or that platform as being a big part of his success and his brand. And he's probably not wrong there. Okay, let's we'll switch gears a bit and we'll get off that whole topic. I love stories about investor behavior and this is a really classic one. And I say classic because this kind of stuff happens more regularly than it should. And then you would think it's a bit depressing actually. Um, but so Elon Musk, CEO of Tesla through a tweet caused investors to basically pump up um, the share price of a completely irrelevant company. And Elon Musk himself didn't do anything wrong. It was definitely an investor fault, but it's hilarious. So if you haven't heard, there's been a lot of privacy concern chatter about WhatsApp lately. It's caused a lot of people to actually lose, uh, leave the platform and stop using it, uh, specifically about its ability to share data with its parent company, Facebook. Now, if you're already using Facebook Messenger itself, which that that's definitely already happening, Facebook more or less admit that it does monitor the messages there. But WhatsApp was always a little bit more, more removed from Facebook. But basically, it's gone through a change to its terms of services that kind of freaked people out and it started a lot of chatter about you know, maybe we should swap to different platforms or different services for messaging purposes that have um, better privacy, better encryption, uh, this comes here from a Business Insider Australia article on January 17 by Kate Duffy. Quote, the Messenger app, is, she's referring to WhatsApp, which sells itself as a privacy-focused service, will next month force its users to agree to let Facebook and its subsidiaries collect their personal data on WhatsApp, including phone numbers and locations. Now, if you read further into the article, you talk to a lot of technology experts that say that what, they're, what they'd be harvesting is actually metadata, around you know who messages who where they message you know where they message from where, where were they at the time um what time they did it so it's not so much the actual content of the message but the actual that metadata that's attached to it so what so elon musk kind of weighed into the whole conversation and he tweeted something very simple he just tweeted use signal and he's referencing a, a, a another messaging app on the app store called signal uh, it's much more highly regarded in terms of privacy con- concerns. It has end-to-end encryption. And I'll take this to explain it. Uh, this is from Bloomberg on January 12, quote, use signal in quotation marks, the Tesla 
chief executive officer wrote on Twitter on January 7, apparently referring to the encrypted messaging service. However, by the end of the day, Signal Advance Incorporated shares had surged more than sixfold, and that was enough to push Signal Advance's rally more than 5,100% in three trading days, giving it a market valuation of $390 million. So what happened there was by the end of the day, um, especially because of his tweet, the shares of a completely underrelated, I believe they're like a medical device company, they just surged on the market because people piled in um, expecting this huge user increase to Signal, which is true, but this is not Signal, the actual app. Um, and the reason I love this stuff is, again, it happens more times than it should. My favorite example is a really old story, um, but I did find an old Guardian article in 2013 about it. Um, it's by Dominic Roche, and it is about the Twitter IPO. So when Twitter was actually planning to list on the stock market for the first time. So he says, quote, shares in failed electronics retail chain Tweeter Home Entertainment Group, and it's spelled T-W-E-E-T-E-R, so it's not spelled like Twitter. So Tweeter Home Entertainment Group soared after Twitter announced it was intending a share sale. Tweeter, which specialized in higher-end electronics, filed for bankruptcy years prior in November 2008 and closed its stores soon after. But its shares surged 1,800% to 13 cents after the social media firm set out its plans for initial public offering. And what happened was the regulatory authority over there for their markets had to suspend the trading on Twitter because they realized what people were doing, uh, but the people were investing in what they thought was Twitter. And Twitter hadn't even listed at this stage. They were just piling into some somewhat similar name. Um, and it says here, Twitter trades under the stock symbol TWTRQ, just one letter different from Twitter's intender intended ticker symbol, which is TWTR. So people don't even pay enough attention to the actual code itself either. But I just love that stuff because it's just when the, the madness of the crowd catches up and people just pile in because they want to be part of it and they don't want to miss out. And finally today, I'm going to touch on something a bit closer to home here in Australia. It's not really about a specific company, but um, again, I guess a little bit of more investor behavior, um, but from 2020. So there was an interesting article which I read just a couple of days ago, January 15th in the Financial Review by Alex Vikovic. It's about Vanguard uh, and their ETFs or exchange traded funds, which we've talked about before. So Vanguard are the second largest asset manager and they actually reported that they've had their best year. So 2020 was their best year in the Australian market um, since they actually entered the Australian market, which is a couple of decades ago. Um, Specifically, they lured about $5.7 billion into exchange-traded funds over, over 2020. Uh, in terms of percentage, they had a 12% increase in inflows into its ETF business compared to the year prior in 2019. So, so a 12% increase in inflows there. Uh, the one other one they say is their Australian shares ETF. So I think they're referring there to their, the ticker code is VAS. So it's just an Australian shares ETF that they have listed. It experienced greater inflows than any investment product on the local market last year. $684 million invested in the fourth quarter of 2020 alone, which is massive. So it kind of shows that last year, um, as turbulent as things were, there was a lot of people that also saw this as an opportunity to invest as well. And that, that's something I, I did this with uh, two ETFs that I own 
Um, I have a, a Vanguard Australian shares ETF. I also have a NASDAQ, I've mentioned this many times before, a NASDAQ 100 ETF, and I did top up both. The thing that you have to sort of remember this is, you know, at, at no point did I know when the right time to, to top up was, you know, not like you can pick the bottom. I guess what I, the way I took it is, oh, I'm not going to pile, if I had a few thousand dollars saved up, um, I'm not going to just pile it all in on the same day. But the way I sort of did it is I put a, a little bit in, I think in like March, which, you know, turned out to be a good time to do it because that was pretty much near the bottom. Um, again, I put a little bit more in sort of maybe late April, early May, and a little bit more more towards August because, again, at the end of the day, you know, you're going to keep hearing that, oh, is this the bottom of the market? Maybe it's going to crash again. And maybe it, maybe it was going to, who knows? But it didn't in the end. Um, there's no way of knowing that in the time. But um, I, was, I would say that I'm personally part of that, that big surge into ETFs last year as well. At least I topped up the ones that I had. Like it, it seems like a, an obvious opportunity there. And, and that was something that seems to be broadly shared among Australian investors because it was a, it was a big year for ETFs. But yes, that is... That is it for the podcast this week. This is our Welcome Back podcast. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I know I always bracket on about this, but um, if you haven't already, leave a review about the show, about the episode, about the podcast and whatever platform you use. If you can, that is, not all of them allow it. I hope you enjoyed the episode, the first one back for 2021. Uh, looking forward to keeping on top of um, some interesting topics as we go through the year and we, we see how covid vaccines roll out we see how the recovery continues to roll out as well cheers for tuning in to this episode my name is dion gribben you're listening to the market pulse podcast have a good one